Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. You have to have a reason to be doing what you're doing. Mm. And it comes back to a lot of our conversation to get you through those dark times, to get your first employees, to get your first investors. And for us, we've always had that purpose of the inherent meaning of serving artists and then the value of what the artists do for society overall. Martin Hosking, co-founder of Redbubble, built the art and design online marketplace into the global juggernaut it is today, with almost 7 million customers spending around $400 million in sales on the website just last year alone. So how did the little boy who was raised by his single mum after his father died when he was just three years old go on to seize the opportunity offered by the internet that he recognised when he first came across it in the mid-90s to make not one, but two fortunes in online businesses. Well, in part two of our chat, you'll see how Martin Hosking learned about fierce work ethic, purpose and service from his doctor mum and how those values have driven his entire adult life. And along that journey, he says his history degree of all things plus the five years he worked as an Australian diplomat in the Middle East, taught him invaluable lessons that he later deftly applied to business and the world of internet startups. You started, as you said, in early 2007. Within nine years in 2016, you had listed on the ASX, Redbubble became a public company. It was valued at something like $288 The transition to an ASX listed company, I know you had been involved with others, but was it a major adjustment for the Redbubble team? It's an interesting one because particularly at the moment, been a bit of wariness about listing early stage companies and keeping them private for longer. I think that generally is a pretty good thing. So we'd been private for nine years. The one thing I would say that staying private, though, to avoid good governance is not a good idea. So I think that we Ah, had had, and by governance, I mean a good board uh, and a good reporting responsibilities, a good operating rhythm where management feels like it's accountable to somebody else, which is the shareholders, but the shareholders via the board. So we'd steadily been increasing the quality of the board, the quality of the board's engagement, and the nature of its governance responsibilities at Redbubble. So that by the time we went public, the transition was not dramatic. And we took quite a long time. We actually had been working on it for a number of years before we actually went public. And by working on it, I don't mean working on the specifics of being a public company, but quarterly reporting, were mm. the finances good on a quarterly basis? Were we doing good reviews of management? Uh, were we doing, did we have a risk register? So we were thinking about all of the things which are good governance. We'd been doing and adopting those structures. And I think that it's okay to, to be a public or private company, but what's not okay, I think, is not having good, good governance mm. structures. And the good thing about being a public company is those governance structures are generally very good, not completely, but generally very good. Now, as I read through all the various notes and doing research up until late 2017, Redbubble, in terms of its share price, it did struggle a bit. It trailed its listing price. Mm-hmm. What were the problems in really getting traction after that initial listing? Um, and I believe you also suffered at the hands 
of something Google did. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think it is one of the challenges of being a public company, particularly when you have quarterly reporting, is it can be a tendency for shareholders, correctly so, uh, to react to what's happening in the immediate quarter. And so it wasn't, the challenge for us wasn't that we weren't having good growth. We actually have had very consistent growth. um, So when we listed in FY16, our revenue was $115 million dollars. Last year, it was $349 million. So you, the growth in the revenue, and that had been a consistent you know, upward line. But what hadn't been the case was the, it was that the, the market had had more, had expectations with, that it would be a bit quicker than that or that it would be a bit different yeah. than that. It would have a different profile than that. And it's a gap between expectations and reality where you get the volatility occurring in the share price. So while there's been steadiness in the underlying metrics for the, of the business, and, and that is both on the, on the revenue line item or on the gross profit line item or on in the growth in the growth in, in operating in EBITDA, while those things have been EBITDA only before yeah. interest tax depreciation amortization, while those lines had all been consistently growing, what there'd always there'd been this gap between what the market had been expecting. And that's where the volatility occurred. And when I said there's some disadvantages about being a listed company, that is certainly this is probably, you know, the number one disadvantage has been that is that you trying to match the market expectations is very challenging. I will say as well, it wasn't just the market. We also did a bad, a poor job of setting those expectations well, at least early on. Yeah. And then can you briefly explain what the problem with Google was? Oh, yes. We as a company have uh, had some dependence on traffic from Google mm-hmm. and the Red Bubble marketplace. So the company now owns two marketplaces, Red Bubble and T Public. Google had an algorithm change in October 2018, which disadvantaged Red Bubble. It actually advantaged our sister company, which is T Public. And so it was an interesting situation. Uh, so we, as a, at a group level, there was a reasonable degree of consistency in our growth, but at an individual people were concerned, particularly about what was happening in the red bubble marketplace. That's now ironed its way out. We're seeing you know, good growth from both marketplaces with, with Google, uh, but it was that particular disadvantage where you know, Google can have a very high influence on a company. And so we are pleased that we've got two horses in this race with slightly different strategies, which does mean that we don't foresee such things happening in the, in the future, at least to the same extent. In June 2018, you stepped down as CEO, telling the media, at least in one report, that you were striving to put your ego aside and serve the business. What did you mean? At that time, while I could have stayed on, I thought it was in the best interest of the company that my replacement stepped up. Mm. Uh, I thought that that was going to work I thought that was in the best interests of the company. You felt there needed to be new blood or fresh eyes on strategy. I think they did. And I do think that that has, in some ways, that has been borne out in the sense that I think that me being aside from the company was helpful for that period of mm. time. Uh, clearly, though, I'm back. <laughs> so something went, so something didn't go quite something as Something didn't work there um, with the new CEO. He's gone right. less than two I can't, years later. I can't that lily too much, I don't think. No, but I mean, can I just ask you this part about it? You stayed on the board yeah. as a director. In hindsight, was that Difficult or helpful for the new CEO? It's a challenging one. I think 
we've seen different sorts of models mm. uh, where uh, founders have stepped away completely during that particular time with that particular set of circumstances for Redbubble. I think it was helpful that I remained on the board. I'm not so sure whether there's an absolute good answer here which we can rely on. I think it really does depend upon the situation as it is at the time when you when you confront it. Yeah, so why are you back in the CEO chair? Well, it's to, the, to that point, the board felt that the company needed to go in a different strategic direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, growth at Redbubble had stalled last year that the Redbubble marketplace is related to the Google search algorithm changes, but not just to that. And there was a gap between where the strategic direction, how the board thought about the strategic direction of the company and what the, the uh, then CEO felt. So that was the sort of the, the precipitating issue. And so the board asked me to come back uh, without any visibility and what COVID would would be like. So it's been an interim CEO role, uh, probably interim for uh, longer than we had all anticipated. Mm. So the board said putting you in as interim CEO in February 2020, as we've been talking earlier, that was sort of just weeks before the COVID crisis really took hold. They said your job would be to ensure that Redbubble could execute its current growth initiatives, including speeding up its product launch cycle and building up its fan art business. Now, have you been able to do both of those yet? No. No, it's been interesting, actually, as I've come back into the business, the uh, both as relation to COVID and also in relation to his, uh, what was required, it became clear we needed strategic reset for the company. Uh, that wasn't obvious to the the board members at the time. And so what looked like it would be a both interim in terms of interim and continuous so that I would be continuing existing uh, strategic initiatives. We've actually had to Change strategic direction of the company, and we also went through a restructuring as well. Uh, so that restructuring did see, uh, unfortunately, the departure of um, uh, some people. About thirty people left the company at the end of June, and we became a little bit more focused. And the two particular sets of initiatives which you're talking about, two which have really taken a back seat, uh, versus some of the things which I'm, I've been. Uh, had to focus on and have been necessary both for the short term and also for the long term uh, of the company. You are still the largest shareholder, is that right? You still own about what twelve and a half? Correct, yes, twelve and a half percent. So you will have a big say in in the global search for the next CEO, which I guess you're saying has really been put off for a while because of travel restrictions, etc. What about your co-founders? Are they still involved at all? Are you still friends? No, they're not involved in the business. They, they, so my, uh, they're not involved. Uh, they, they stepped back quite a few years ago. Really, from about two thousand and ten, they'd taken a back seat in the company. Yeah, are you still friends? Yes, I am. Yes, I am still friends. Just really briefly, you mentioned before that visual artists earned sixty-seven million last year from Redbubble. Mm-hmm. That's several, you know, hundreds of thousands of visual artists. So do you feel very proud of what you are able to do for artists who, you know, once were always called struggling artists? Not all of them, but many of them. Yes, I am. And it's particularly a lot of these, the artists on Redbubble who are earning money, this is 
a very important source of income for them, but all more important is a source of validation that what they're doing is worthwhile and that people want it. And in many instances, they would not have had an alternative way of finding a marketplace for it. So if you think about you know, the high-end art market, uh, that's a particular segment, and then you've mm. got the sort of the you know, commercial designers. But then you've got this group of people in the middle who are creating very attractive and very valuable sort of content to people. It's never necessarily going to appear in the National Gallery of Australia, but it still has value. And that's the market which we've really opened up. And we've allowed for so many of these artists to find steady incomes. And that's, to me, is a very satisfying outcome. Martin Hosking, you started your working life, as I understand it, at DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. What were you doing there? So this was the recession of uh, the early 1980s. Uh, I graduated from Melbourne University studying history uh, and I got into foreign affairs as my first real job. So one of 27 people, most of whom are now retired, uh, one of whom is the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Francis Adamson. Ah, yes. Uh, so, so I started with, with Francis and I spent five years in the Middle East. What, as a diplomat? As a diplomat, yes. Two years in Egypt, three years in Syria. I met my wife. She wasn't very – she didn't feel the expatriate lifestyle was, was suitable to her. So, got back to Australia and then went on and did a uh, an MBA and then went to McKinsey as well and then, then onto the internet. So, that's a yeah. very quick <laughs> skate across my career. Yeah, that's the quick jump you got from being a diplomat to jumping into business and startups via the MBA? Yeah, via the MBA and via McKinsey. That's right, yes. I'd always been interested in it. So my origin, my very first, um, before I started history, I did had economics as part of my degree. So I'd always been interested in, in business and, and doing things. And you know, there'd been, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs have that as part of their teen years. Mm. I've been involved in those sorts of you know small projects, which you, you do as a teenager. So it had been of interest to me. But what particularly spurred it was that the study of history had alerted me to the fact that big changes in society are typically missed by those people who are in the midst of them. And so when I saw the internet, thinking about the Industrial Revolution, for example, most people during the Industrial Revolution just missed that it was going on. It was only a small number of people who actually really uh, took advantage of that situation. When I saw the internet in 1995, I was convinced it was going to change everything about you know, the way in which we interacted and so was desperate to become involved in it very early on. Uh, And so I think it was the history degree more than anything else which gave me the perspective to want to seize the opportunity which I saw in the internet. And that was just as a, a change in society more than anything else. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, what sort of family life did you have as a younger person? Were your folks entrepreneurial? Were they business people? Did they expect a lot from you academically or were they workhorses? (laughs) Well, uh, my father died when I was very young, so when I was three years old, uh, and so I was brought up by a single mum. 
a single mum who is small but extremely fierce. I describe <laughs> her. She's now getting into. Her. She's now getting uh, quite elderly, but she had grown up during. She was a child of the Depression. Had grown up during the war and had done a medical degree at a time when there weren't that many women doing it, wow. uh, and then had raised three boys. So you can imagine oh, the situation. A father dies, and she has three boys, all under the age of five. Single mum, uh, and she was at that stage just uh, just so, so, so uh, she was a general practitioner. She had a general practice, but then she went on to become an obstetrician and gynaecologist. Oh, in amazing Canberra. woman! So, if so if there's any Canberra listeners, it's almost certain that at least some of them will have been delivered by uh, my mum uh, Anne Hosking. She had uh, inspired in me. She she was an extremely hard worker, as you would have to be in those sort of circumstances. Academia was important and uh, success there. But more importantly, her values uh, have really defined the way in which I think about what I'm doing with my life. She always had a sense of her role as a medical practitioner, as an obstetrician, as an obligation, as a duty to serve people well and to serve all people well. You know, whoever was coming in through the door of the office, uh, whatever their circumstances in life was to be served well. And so she had that sense of, uh, of service and of, of charity, I think, in the best sense of that. Mm, extraordinary. Tell me a little bit about your time at LookSmart. It was a startup in the mid-90s. It came out of Reader's Digest, which I certainly remember, but many of our listeners may not know much about Reader's Digest. How did you get involved in all that? Evan Thornley and Tracy Ellery, Evan had been consulting to the Reader's Digest. Was he at McKinsey's with you? Was at McKinsey's. That's how I knew him, and I knew Tracy from Melbourne University. So he had pitched the idea to Reader's Digest to back the company, which became LookSmart. And particularly, what he'd pitched to them was that uh, the Reader's Digest had provided a condensed version of the world of books and knowledge. That was sort of in a very yes. broad summary of. And what he said to them was that what he was pitching was that LookSmart would be that for the internet age, wow. uh, and that and the Reader's Digest. Supported that uh, at least for a few years, but then they withdrew their support and we lost their funding. Had a scramble for raising money, and we had a few people here in Australia who had backed the company, including Champ Ventures, but others, Champ Ventures being Su Ming Wong, who then backed uh, Redbubble. Uh, mm-hmm. So we had a few people who backed the company who went on to do very well Mm. but in context it was a company of that era it didn't Mm. have a strong business model its economics were never good its its market fit was never good and we weren't alone this is not a i'm being critical of of, of look smart there's very very few dot-com companies which emerged out strongly out of that that era yeah can can i just take a a few little steps uh, before we jump to that just to remind people i mean look smart search engine was launched launched in, what, 96. That's right. You ended up listing it on the NASDAQ in the United States. I mean, you debuted at $12 a share, I think, in 1999. Mm -hmm. Within a few months, it got to $30 a share. This is the way the dot-com bubble part of it Mm -hmm. was working. The founder's 15% stake was worth something like 375 million bucks. It briefly got to $70 a share before that mm-hmm. dot-com bubble burst in late 2000. I mean, that must have been a pretty shocking and sobering roller coaster up and down as you then had to, you know, sack staff slash costs. Yes. 
Have I got the picture right? Very, very, very sobering. Very sobering. And I think it's it it it, it when I sort of came back to Australia when it it was the experience of having a company which didn't have fundamentally strong economics, didn't mm. have a strategy which was aligned with customers, and we weren't alone. But it was the story of that era. Yeah. Uh, and it, there were so many companies were and I. For me, I never wanted to be in that position again. Mm. I always wanted to be in the position of understanding who we were serving, how that was worthwhile as a company, and how we're going to be making money out of that for our shareholders. It was sobering and uh, quite disconcerting as well. Yeah, so I guess you, what you're saying is you learned a lot out of that bruising experience. I did learn a lot, and it really was the critical importance of making sure that you do things for uh, fundamental reasons rather than because you think it's going to look good on a press release or you think some group of investors want it, avoiding expediency and avoiding short-term thinking. Uh, so over the last few years with, with Redbubble, for example, um, there's been investors who have wanted us to take short-term actions, and I've really avoided that and making sure we actually do get on with fundamental fundamentals. Mm. And the fundamentals, are they, you know, what is the rationale for this? I mean, why can't Canva or some company that hasn't even been invented yet, why can't they do what you're doing and do it better and steal your business model? I mean, what is the important thing to make sure you do when you have a startup, when you have an idea? The reason why they can't take Redbubble on is because of the marketplace effect. So if you start up a company uh, and try and do what Redbubble does, why would an artist go for you? You haven't got any sellers. And why would a seller go with you? You haven't got any artists. And so when we, since we started in 2006, we've only had one other company emerge at any scale to compete with us, and that was T Public, which we bought. And I can go into the reasons why uh, they succeeded. And that is the case with realestate.com or Seek here in Australia. It just requires enormous, enormous amount of resources to come up with a competitor to, 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 to either of those companies. In the case of uh, realestate.com, I don't know how much has gone into domain to mm. actually try and catch up with real estate, but it must be you know, many, many, many millions of dollars to, to, to catch up. So that's why people can't compete uh, against Redbubble just to be a devil's advocate here, are you saying if Jeff Bezos decided to, oh, I like the look of Redbubble, I'm going to do it at Amazon, that he couldn't just wipe you out? Yeah. And well, he said that. He, he's doing that. Yeah, no, he's doing that. <laughs> uh, so, there, so within that, it's, and within the case of, of somewhere like Amazon, the challenge there is there's a sort of a standalone value to Redbubble, and it's a little bit like the situation with the the big box sellers. You know, right. so it would be possible for for uh, you know, why why didn't all of the retailing just converge on Meyer uh, and uh, and uh, David Jones? And the answer was the specialist sellers of of barbecues or or baby gear or toys were able to create a better experience for those people who are wanting those things. So the specialist so in the case of Amazon, Amazon has tried to it tried to compete against eBay directly and never got mm-hmm. a two-sided marketplace working against eBay. There's a company okay. called Etsy in the United States which yep. deals with crafts. Amazon has tried to compete against that. They've never got that working and they've tried to compete against us. But the artists, they've never got the value proposition for artists working and the content just exists in this huge pool, which is Amazon, uh, whereas our 
case, it's a much more specialised focused experience and that focus provides value to the artists it also provides value for the consumers uh, and so mm. that's the reason why somebody like amazon well they certainly can compete they, they will try but it's against a very focused competitors they find it much more challenging uh, and that's why for example in the australian context a company like temple and webster which prov- which is mm. selling furniture, it's hard for Amazon to compete directly against Temple and Webster because furniture is a very specialised experience and you need a very specialised interface, a very specialised way of looking at it. And so Temple and Webster has got considerable traction as a consequence because of the focus that they have on that particular category. And our focus on our category, which is both artists and fulfilment and then also what the customers want, uh, gives us the the edge versus um, uh, even a, a big competitor like Amazon. Yeah. So, Martin, if I asked you, is there a main, one main ingredient in building up a business like Redbubble or like any of the other businesses that you've either been involved with or that you look on and respect, what is that main ingredient? It has to be purpose. You have to have a reason to be doing what you're doing. Mm. And it comes back to a lot of our conversation to get you through those dark times, to get your first employees, to get your first investors. While the business model will appeal to them, there's lots of places they can put their time and energy, which they may or may not be able to make more money. But what will actually get them to to sign off as, a, as an investor, as an employee, is that you're pursuing something which they are aligned to which they have a sense of purpose about think about Australian companies if I think about Aconex which I was chair from their purpose was very clear Atlassian their purpose is very clear and I could canva their purpose is very clear they put it the heart of what they do and I could go through the other other Australian companies which I think uh, are commendable or, or international ones and for us we've always had that purpose of the inherent meaning of serving artists and then the value of what the artists do for society overall so when I talk to somebody about red bubble typically, what they engage with, oh, the numbers sound interesting and engaging, but then there will be, oh, look at the interesting art which is being produced, look at the role it's providing in society, and the employees will identify with that, and that will provide you with the resilience which you need to go through the hard times, and it will also provide you with the uh, the, the focus which will allow you to make right decisions. In the absence of that, you will just be making any old decision. You know, you, mm. you, 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 you provide you with the North Star for good decision making. So that would be for my mind. And when I talk to uh, to early stage founders, if what they're saying is that the reason why they're doing it is to make a lot of money, then I'm just sort of it, it will leave me cold pretty yeah. quickly. It'll leave most investors pretty cold pretty quickly. Yeah. It's not it's not a good enough reason. So you've just mentioned a couple of companies. What are the digital companies either here or offshore that you really respect? Etsy, the company which I mentioned early on, their sense of purpose in serving craftspeople and doing that well, uh, I think is highly valuable and a sense of uh, providing a, a differentiated experience from just sort of imported commodity products eBay, uh, I knew eBay at the early days, and mm. there's a wonderful book called, I think it's just called The Perfect Store. Over recent years, it's been a bit challenging, but I certainly have mm. respected uh, what eBay did very early on. I just interviewed Daniel Petrie, who helped bring eBay to Australia. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, in, in the Australian context, I certainly, you know, Canva, I think, has uh, done a wonderful job in enabling design to be much more democratised. I think Atlassian has done a wonderful job in recreating 
the way in which teams work together. So I'm reciting their purposes mm. because they make clear what their purposes are. I just don't have it word for word, but they're there. I think that CultureAmp, uh, which is a Melbourne-based company, which helps with employee engagement, is doing a really good job there. Other companies in the Australian context are CSL. Yeah, one of the great Australian companies. A great Australian company. And, and it's because it's all about, it all depended on upon – it's not selling off uh, things out of the ground. Now, we do need to do that, but it's actually mining Australian talent and brains and creativity uh, to create the products which they sell on a global basis. So, And the fact that it's now the most valuable company, I think it's the most valuable company on the ASX, is you know we need more companies like uh, CSL. So those would be some of the companies which I admire. Martin, I'm asking a lot of my guests these next few questions. I mean, do you have any business people who've inspired you, who you look to, whether they be people you know or people you don't know? Yes, I do. Quite obvious names, but maybe obvious is good. Warren Buffett, for me, has you know his book, the book which I read, I've read a couple of biographies of Buffett. But the thing which inspires me about him is his looking to the longer term. As an mm. investor, that's good. I'm glad that he's made a lot of money for himself. But what I like about it is his his ability to think. Well, what will something be in five or ten years' time, and to hold on to that ideal. Now, I have an investor in Redbubble. Uh, and a, a US investor who bought the stock, and I, could, I probably shouldn't mention his name, but he bought the stock after it went public, and he bought it as the share price was falling, and he bought it typically from Australian institutions who were selling and who were anxious. Now, he's made, I think, so far about eight times his money on the stock and is continuing to hold. His view is it still is the best investment he has. Now, this is an investor who makes one investment decision a year. He's running a fund of about $400 million. He buys into companies, he buys in big, and then he holds. That is discipline. That is true discipline. He looks at you know hundreds of companies each year, but then makes one investment decision to buy and then completely commits. Now, I hear from uh, him every, uh, every few days. He knows the company as well from the outside hmm. as anybody. And that, to my mind, is, is a sort of a highly disciplined uh, institutional investors of whom there are very, very few who have that degree of focus. Most of the institutions who are bought into Redbubble have either bought and sold, so there's been relatively few who have had the consistency. So certainly him. I think you know, Jeff Bezos from pure ambition point of view, it's hard to it's hard to you know, I I'm not sure that I'd definitely model the company after him, but uh, I think his his ability to seize opportunity uh, mm. I think is something which any company needs to look at uh, and at least be aware of and motivate uh, and encourage sort of provide the right opportunity for em- employees. So that would certainly be a- an example uh, of somebody. Steve Jobs also, from a different perspective, I think Steve Jobs' focus on getting things beautiful and doing something and being prepared to do something different for periods of time is 
commendable. Again, similar to these other stories, he took a long, a longer term perspective, and so I think that's probably the consistent theme yeah. about what I'm talking is people who uh, who aren't being sort of unvolatile in the moment. So, uh, and Steve Jobs certainly uh, showed that consistency. He perhaps was a bit too much of a yeller in his early days, but I mm. believe in his latter career he was less less so. Maybe when he came back to Apple to save it. That's right. Yeah, I think he, he sort of developed a little bit more uh, focus uh, or, or personal self-control, I think, perhaps would be a way I'd describe it. That would yeah. be some examples. Yeah. Martin Hosking, what are you obsessed about at the moment? The thing which is most on my mind uh, is the consequences of the COVID crisis. And I think that it has, uh, and it would be surprising if that was not the case. I'm worried about the fact that a lot of young people seem to have disconnected and leaving a sense of meaning in their lives. And I was reading a report of the very high rates of suicide ideation amongst younger people and very high levels of anxiety and depression. And with not a lot of good institutional ways of addressing that, my conversations with where the foundation, where my personal foundation is going, and in conversations with other people, uh, one of my very good friends is Ian Gawler. You probably mm. know Ian Gawler, Helen, uh, who mm. did the Gawler Foundation uh, related to cancer in mm-hmm. terms of leaders who I admire. He certainly is there. It's one of the things which we are working on and thinking about is, you know, how can you contribute to uh, help those underlying stresses which will endure post-COVID, whatever that looks like. That's the thing which, outside of work, that's the thing which I'm putting my most time and thinking and energy into. And we're certainly coming up with, I think, with some, uh, what I think could be some helpful uh, initiatives. What's the biggest thing you think you've learned in your startup journey? The biggest thing has been the criticality of taking that longer-term perspective, and that longer-term perspective ultimately does need to be tied into a sense of purpose. And where you get that sense of purpose, it will be bringing together different aspects of the things which you've been interested in. And so, for me, purpose is not something which one can just come up with. You know, people say, let's come up with the values for the company, or let's come up with our purpose. It can't quite emerge in that rather sort of institutionalised sort of Mm. way. It needs to come from a a deeper foundation. And when I talk to people, and whether they be serious business and serious organisational leaders who are really having impact, what I eventually discover over time is that their purpose is coming from some inherent sense of their role in society and their sense of who they are as well in the, in, in in that context. And that can be leaders at any level mm. in an organisation. Um, and I think when I talk – so that's the thing which I've learned is, is the, the, the critical thing, ingredients for business success, and it's a critical thing for me also to nurture in myself. What's the toughest thing you've faced in your career? The most difficult personal challenge for me has been being prepared to make difficult decisions around people. I think that I was very inclined early on to what looked like empathy but was really afraid of confrontation uh, and not being prepared to make 
choices which were actually in the best interest of people. So I weren't actually looking at the situation from a whole. I was more concerned about how I would be feeling in any given, and particularly if you're laying somebody off or if you're providing them with feedback, uh, which they may not feel like they want to hear. I would often dodge those conversations. And that was, and I think what I was doing was rather than protecting them, I was protecting myself. Mm. Uh, And I think good businessmen, and you don't want to go the other way and just become harsh and heartless, but you do need to be providing people with consistent, helpful feedback. And you do, on occasion, have to make difficult choices, which they may not want to hear at the time, but may actually be in the best, certainly maybe in the best interest of the company and hopefully in in due course in the best interest of them as well. And I think I dodged some of those decisions early on. What would you say to young people listening to you, wanting to pursue either a great idea or to be entrepreneurial? Mm. I think what I would say is it is worth putting in preparation for it. It's relatively rare the people who are at a university and give up that university just and are then successful in their first entrepreneurial venture. Uh, we mentioned Canva before. They had had a number of tries before they got it right. And so I think it is good to start and finish things to the extent and be prepared to learn from others. I certainly learned an awful lot in foreign affairs, which I've been put, prepared to put to good use. I uh, certainly like learned what? a lot at McKinsey. Oh, well, in foreign affairs, it, it taught me um, the value of discernment uh, and it, the value of control is very important. Self-control is very mm. important. In certain, you know, if you're in a, a war, <laughs> in our case in, in Syria and Lebanon, having some control and not being very emotionally buffeted is quite important and being able to look at it slightly more objectively. So it taught me those both in terms of way in which you can portray it, but also in terms of the personal environment which we're in. And so I, was, um, I, I visited Lebanon during the, the intense conflict which went on there a number of mm. times. And you know, that's a, a helpful conditioning, if you will. I then think it teaches you judgment because you're called upon to make decisions in quite complex environments and convey those well and effectively, both orally and in writing. And that's an invaluable skill set for somebody. Journalists often learn the same thing as well. I think it's a, they're very similar careers, journalism uh, and, and foreign affairs in that respect. Yeah. And would you encourage young people to be entrepreneurial? I'd encourage young people to excel at what they're doing. And the reason why I'm being a little Mm. bit cautious here is that most ventures do not Mm. succeed well and you need to have something which is compelling in order to be worthwhile pursuing it. So just saying, I want to be an entrepreneur uh, and I'm going to do something is not as good as, you know, waiting or making sure that you're getting good at your skills, uh, you're developing good capabilities. They may be in an accounting if you're joining an accounting firm or uh, they could be in the law if you're joining law or if you're working in a business in some form, getting good at that. uh, And then when the opportunity arises, uh, whether you've come up with it or you've, uh, you've partnered with somebody, then being prepared to seize that opportunity. But you only seize it well if you've already got uh, 
pretty good at your skill sets. And if you think about the uh, entrepreneurs I named, each of those had very good skills before they actually succeeded in their ventures. It's very, very rare the person who is 19 or 20 or 22 mm. uh, who just starts up a venture and it just becomes an instant success. That's the most exceptional of all circumstances. Martin Hosking, it's been an enormous pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you very much, Helen. Very much enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.